Welcome to GOB with Christy and Kathy, where we talk about writing, reading, and life in between. I'm Christy in South Florida. And I'm Kathy in South Dakota. We're two newbie writers who share our love of food, wine, and crime fiction. We have interviews with best-selling and award-winning authors on our Corks and Conversation episodes. And don't forget our Words in Progress episodes where we have fun writing lessons with writing experts. Join us for today's episode. Welcome to our April Crime Book Chat episode. This is our last and final Crime Book Chat episode of Season 5. It's a new series that we started this year and it's been an absolute blast. And today we're excited to get to know four more amazing authors who book, whose books cover many areas of crime fiction. So this is going to be really fun. Yes, they, they all have um, great new books that have come out to great reviews. So that'll be interesting to talk about. And so let's get started with the introductions. So first, um, we have Kimberly Giartano, and she's an author of Mysteries for Teens and Adults. Her debut novel, Grunge Gods and Graveyards, won the 2015 Silver Falchion Award for Best YA at Killer Nashville. A former librarian, she is currently an instructor at SUNY Orange County Community College and a reviewer for Book Page. She is also the chapter liaison for Sisters in Crime. Born in New York and raised in New Jersey, Kim and her husband moved to the Poconos to raise their three kids amid black bears and wild turkeys. (laughs) I'm wondering if those are the animals or the whiskey here. (laughs) While she doesn't miss the traffic, she'd give anything for a decent bagel and locks. Okay, so Kimberly, it's great to see you today. And um, can you tell us a little bit about your novel? Absolutely. My novel, Death of the Dancing Queen came out on February 14th, Valentine's Day. And it is set in Bergen County, New Jersey. And it features a 24-year-old woman who takes over her grandfather's private investigation business in order to just utilize those flexible hours so that she can take care of her mom who has early onset Alzheimer's disease. And her first case involves a missing woman a cold case going back 30 years that gets her embroiled in decades-long feud between a neo-Nazi skinhead group and a Jewish mob. And it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) I love the title, Death of a Dancing Queen. That's a great title, too. Thank you so much. Okay, uh, it is my pleasure to introduce today Rick Blyweiss. Did I say that correctly, Rick? You absolutely did. Okay, well, stay tuned. Um, <laughs> Rick has crafted the best-selling, award-winning Pignon Scorpion historical mystery series. Correct me, Rick, because I'm sure I messed up. Nope, that's perfect. <sighs> Score. Um, so I'm very excited to tell you more about Rick. He, in this historical mystery series, he blends his love of the past with the twisty deliciousness of a whodunit. And I just think that's why, right, any historical reader's... <laughs> Love that. He has recently also contributed a wonderful story to the mystery anthology Hotel California, which is an apt title for what I'm going to tell you next. Before becoming an author, Rick started his career in music as a rock performer, a Grammy-nominated producer of over 50 records. Wow. He is a record company senior executive who has worked with some Very low um, talent people like Clive Davis and Melissa Etheridge, the Backstreet Boys, Kiss, U2, Whitney Houston, 
the Bee Gees, and other legends. Since 2006, as a publishing company executive, he has acquired works by noted authors and celebrities. So we could just go on about that all day. But first, we want to know about your latest release. Well, my latest release, uh, Murder in Haxford, is the second book in the Pinion, Scorpion, and the Barbershop Detectives series, although it is a standalone. And it's basically a classic whodunit that takes place in 1910 in a fictitious countryside town in England. And uh, the barbers and shoeshine man assist Scorpion in interviewing um, witnesses and suspects and solving crimes. And it's got humor and it's got no gore, nothing like that in it. And uh, I just have a blast writing it. That sounds, sounds like fun. it. I love it. I love it. Yes. So on to Rebecca Keller. She's a writer, artist, and professor at the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Her artwork has been exhibited widely, and her fiction has appeared in Calyx, New Fairy Tales, Hawaii Pacific Review, and others. Her short fiction has been twice nominated for a Pushcart Prize. She was a finalist for the Chicago Literary Award and gave a TEDx talk at the University of Chicago. Additional achievements include a Fulbright, eh, a grant from the National Endowment of, for the Arts, and the Illinois Arts Council. So, Rebecca, it's great to have you here today. And I have to tell you, listeners out there, you got to look at her website description, her bio, because it's just really funny. Tells all these crazy stories about what she's done in the past. But we're here today to hear about her book. And go ahead, Rebecca, tell us about it. Thank you so much. Um, the book is called You Should Have Known, and it um, centers a 72-year-old woman named Franny Green uh, at the moment when she is uh, pressed by her children to move into a senior living apartment complex. She fell and had a concussion. She's in sound mind and pretty sound body, but they convinced her that this was the way to go. So against some reservation, she moved into an assisted, or it's not really assisted living, an apartment complex. While she's there, she makes friends with a woman named Catherine, only to discover uh, after she's gotten to know this woman that Catherine's husband is the corrupt judge that she blames for the death of her granddaughter and the real you know, shattering of her family and her her daughter's mental health. And what she does with that information comes up with a pretty morally complicated situation. In a moment of porous judgment, she gives in to some of her worst impulses. And she's a former nurse. It involves a medicine cart. I'll leave it from there. I love the older protagonist. That just, had, you had me a hello on that. That's just awesome. <laughs> Okay, finally, to round out our group today, we get to welcome Richard Meredith. Um, his career, and for those of you who are longtime listeners, Richard was on an earlier episode. Um, gosh, Chris, do you remember what season that was? Three. Three, I think. Um, Two, and that three. was really fun. Um, Richard's career as a marine scientist and a wildlife biologist has provided rich fodder for his writing. Um, his newest novel, Maskirovka. Maskirovka. Thank you. The Russian Science of Deception uh, draws heavily on his work as an analyst in the petroleum industry, 
His years on commercial fishing boats formed the backdrop of his thriller The Crow's Nest, which also was a Silver Fashion Award-winning novel um, at the 2021 Killer Nashville Mystery and Thriller Writers Conference. Richard, great to see you again. Welcome. Well, thanks for having me back. Did I come into the right panel here? These guys are pretty accomplished. <laughs> this is an amazing panel. I know, yeah. I know. I'm thinking the same thing about all of you. I know, it's amazing, right? <laughs> So tell us about your latest release. Well, the KGB may have changed its name to the S SVR, but it's up to its old tricks, only this time with a new puppet. That's the American public. So mm -hmm. Maskarovka, the Russian science of deception, is, uh, I call it a genre cocktail. It's one part murder mystery, two part spy thriller, and a dash of police procedural mixed in. It's a story about how the Russian intelligence agency, um, the SVR, infiltrates most respected American institutions in, uh, in order to subvert the U.S. petroleum industry in order to maintain their stranglehold on the European energy market. My protagonist is a young uh, San Francisco detective named Steve Wynn, who was caught loose on his first solo case, which is the death of a young accountant with a public interest foundation. And everything points to natural causes, and it should be a slam dunk rule out homicide, but he's not ready to close the book. And to the dismay of his chief, he starts, starts investigating anyway. But without means, motor, or opportunity, this anxiety-wracked uh, law school dropout starts starts digging. Uh, what he uncovers is a uh, the secret mal uh, malevolent alliance among this Russian uh, billionaire oligarch, a uh, duplicitous foundation director, and a renowned uh, philanthropist, all hell-bent on tightening Russia's stranglehold on the European energy market by choking off U.S. exports. And if it means corrupting the American electoral system through illegal campaign contributions, political blackmail and propaganda worthy of uh, Goebbels and Riefenstahl and a few dead bodies. So be it. <laughs> All right. That is definitely a lot of different <laughs> that things like being a... juggled, yeah. right? Yep. Several plot lines. Yep. <laughs> While I was listening to this, I just really love to hear about all your uh, different main characters. They're they're just, all of them seem like they have like, you know, some unique qualities. And um, I wonder what inspired you to write these characters. And so we're going to start with the ladies. And I, I want to say that both Rebecca and Kimberly, you both have strong, but very different female protagonists. And they both deal with the problems of aging actually, in very different ways. And that's what kind of drew, drew me to these characters. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I have, you know, I guess we're all at that age where we're kind of taking care of, you know, or moving into aging issue, issues and stuff. So anyway, I thought we'd start with that. And you guys can tell how you came up with these characters and, and what you want us to know about them. So let's start with Rebecca. Yeah, I, well, first off, I was really interested, Richard, in your formulation of uh, uh, a genre cocktail. I feel like this is, it's not a typical, um, you know, there's, it's suspenseful, but it's not exactly a mystery. I think the publisher wasn't quite sure. It's kind of literary fiction with a dash of mystery, mystery with a dash of literary fiction in a, you know, in a blender. So, I mean, I, I wanted to, to write a story about a, a about a person, a good person who does something bad um, mm -hmm. and who then has to kind of deal with the, the fallout. But what really started me thinking about that is thinking about somebody who, who is in a situation where they feel like they can get away with something. And, or if they didn't get away with it, what would the consequences be? 
Mm-hmm. And at one point in an early draft, I, I can't even remember at this point if it's in the final book, but uh, she said, what are they going to do? Throw me at, at the time she was 80. My protagonist was older when I started an 80 year old lady in jail. And she, she realizes that in this setting, this kind of closed setting, everybody assumes that old people can't have no agency and won't do anything. And mm-hmm. old women in particular are kind of culturally invisible. Mm-hmm. And she realizes that that provides her a lot of freedom, you know, that she can act in ways mm-hmm. and no one. Plus the way she, she doesn't have it in her mind. She doesn't have a whole lot to lose. Right. And she's maybe wants to finish this off before it becomes right her end, you know, she, does, she doesn't have a lot to lose. I mean, she's, mm-hmm. you know, she's looking, she's, there's a lot less ahead of her than behind her. And she um, is so upset at the destruction of her family that she sort of allows herself to go down a dark path. Mm-hmm. Um, and so her, the genesis of her character partly came because I wanted a situation in which someone would feel that way, would feel that they could act without um, being caught. And with, and if they were caught, wouldn't really have to suffer many consequences. And one of the prime ways of doing that is I'm thinking, well, an old person, you know, who's thinking they're not going to suspect me. I'm invisible. Mm-hmm. And even that if lack I of agency, caught, like becomes a superpower kind of right when you overlooked, that's kind of interesting. Right. So, so being invisible, she realized gave her a lot of freedom. It was a kind of a paradoxical realization. So that's how I sort of arrived at her. But, you know, also I was interested in, in the situation, you know, you don't see older characters in books, mm-hmm. um, especially ones who are not doddering or quirky or, or, um, or ill. And I mean, mm-hmm. there's no, I have no problem with any of those, um, but you know, somebody who's in their seventies. I mean, we all know people in their seventies who are, they're just people, <laughs> you know, they're, right, they're just right. themselves. <laughs> and, um, and one of the, you know, one of the reasons I had trouble, I think I had trouble getting, finding a publisher was I had, can't tell you how many people said I can't sell a book with an older protagonist, which struck me as a real failure of imagination. Wow. Um, yeah. It's it just astonishing how many people said that to me. Well, I think they're wrong because there's a lot of people that are retired that read right. <laughs> and they want to see right. themselves in the Right. And as you know, her daughter, and I, I know Kimberly's book involves a daughter. Her daughter is a very important character. And who reads books? Middle-aged women and their moms. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. so as thousands of book groups, I know we have a mister in, in crime here, but, or, but you know what I mean? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a really, so anyway, so that's how I, I, how she sort of developed is I wanted someone who was very much a regular person, but older, but who people saw differently because of her age. Interesting. Interesting. So, um, Kimberly, what did you, where did your character come from? So I also wanted to explore age and I have a younger protagonist because she's 24 years old and her mother has early onset Alzheimer's. Wow. That's tough. So I wanted to explore what it would be like to be young, but feel like you're looking at your future every time you look at your mother and you take care of your mother and you're really terrified of what's coming. So that was my area of exploration that I wanted to kind of touch upon because people my age, I'm Gen X, you know, we are taking care of our parents or many of us are finding we have to take care of our parents. And I kind of wanted to work through that, but I, I wanted to play with a younger protagonist because it isn't really expected that you would think of a 24 year old protagonist who no, it's not often by 
thankfully. Yeah, but by being young, because I have a twenty-four-year-old daughter, and I hope that she. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> doesn't I, have to I do that anytime kind of soon. Or a young woman who's not like she can't even enjoy her youth because of the fears that she has um, right. for for herself when she gets older. But I do have her grandpa is also a character in the novel, and I had a lot of fun writing him. He was he is one of my favorite characters that I've ever written, and he's in his um, he's pushing eighty, so. The age thing is very interesting because I had worked with um, an editor and I was wanting to have an older character. And she similarly, Rebecca, uh, she said, you know what, you're you're not going to be able to sell this if you it wasn't even I wasn't even I can't remember. I don't remember what I I thought. I think I'd put her like 50 or something. And she was like, yeah, they're looking for 30s. And I thought, really, still? I mean, that's such a bummer. So but I love Kimberly. I love that you're the, the span, you know, a young person who isn't even quite found their own way. Right. And then having to that's really that adds a lot of pressure to your protagonist, for sure. I enjoy mm-hmm. generations in a book. I enjoy multiple generations. I love having grandparents. And in my young adult novels, um, I have grandparents feature. I just I yeah. just enjoy it. It's fun. They set up yeah. a different kind of frame. You know, each they have a different frame for the experience that they're they're taking in and it, it, it makes it a little richer soup, I think. And he's her right. mentor. Like her grandfather is her mentor. And, and that's so nice. Yeah, yeah, and and he brings just by nature of who he is as a person, brings a lot of comedy to the to the book because he is funny just just mm-hmm. by who he is. So I had a lot of yeah. fun with that too. I actually I'm probably going to end up if I, you know, I've read one of your books and I'm going to probably read the other one just because I also um, write, I have a work in progress set in like that same type of setting. So I'm kind of curious to see now because Rebecca's is very psychological and not as dark as it sounds like. Kimberly, yours is, is yours considered a noir or? or... It's hard boiled. It's it's hard boiled. Because Rebecca's would be noir to me. Noir to me signifies good people doing bad things. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas mine is squarely hard boiled, where justice is served at the end. Your mm-hmm. protagonist does have a moral sense of right and wrong and mm-hmm. wants to see justice done. And mm-hmm. I really wanted to play with the old detective tropes. It's a private eye novel, whereas mine doesn't span different genres. It's really firmly in the private eye subgenre. It really plays with tropes. And. Uh-huh. I have a lot of fun twisting it. The genre thing, I mean, I found, I don't, <laughs> I found it, find it like so um, on, they just break down so quickly, you know. Yeah. Um, so many books that I really love don't fit neatly in any, in no. like my, in, in the end, you know, Franny ends up solving a crime that rather than committing one. So it's like all over the map. Yeah. And I'm like, I don't yeah. even know what to call this. And it sounds like a lot of us are in that in that situation. Well, I think they're the main overriding thing, and they've switched a lot of it from like, you know, the mystery title to crime fiction. So it can encompass a wide range, yeah. you know. And so so we definitely have that represented here. And so now on to the guys. Both of you have you actually have detectives as your main characters, but again, very different. <laughs> Yours isn't, Rick? No, he's a police officer. Oh, well, it says right on the label, you know, detective, whatever. So I thought, okay, yeah, that, well, that's a the police yeah. detective, actually. Yeah. And Rick's is the same way. His is a police detective. 
I mean, Richards, sorry. Right. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, so they, you're, you're investigative policemen, correct? Yes. 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 Okay. Except yours, Rick, is set in over 100 years ago in England. So right. uh, tell us how that character came about. Um, by the way, just as a sidelight, uh, I'm about to be 79 years old and have my first novel published when I was oh. 77. Oh, and, yay! And, uh, <laughs> That's in awesome. Fact, <laughs> in fact, I do presentations across the U.S. to seniors uh, that you're never too old to chase your rainbows. So, you know, I'm a firm believer in that. Oh. Um, but going back to my character, um, you know, there are two types of uh, writers, basically, pantsers and plotters. Um, I am a pantser. Uh, I do not plot <laughs> anything out in front. I have no idea what I'm going to write. Um, and the story just plays itself out through me in my head. And my job is to sit at my computer keyboard and try to type out uh, what I'm seeing play like a movie in my head so wow. that whoever reads the book can see what I'm seeing. Mm hmm. And uh, the whole Scorpion, uh, actually, I didn't even have a name for the character, just the whole concept of uh, and the first crime that's in the book, because each book has three crimes in it, um, just played out in my head one day. And uh, there it was. And then I just built a novel around what initially started as a short story that just came to me. And that's how all my writing is. So it was you had that plot, that whole idea first, and then you said, "Okay, now I'm now as I'm writing, I'm filling in, filling in all the characters and the scenes, and and, and a ton of research. I mean, you know, when you're writing historical, research is key. You know, the minutia mm -hmm. is what makes it either believable yeah. or not believable. So uh -huh. that, that's staggering the research. I, I yeah, I imagine. <laughs> Why did you pick the era you did? Um, for, I am a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes and Hercule Poirot, and the year 1910 was kind of an interesting year in between because uh, Holmes, uh, according to Doyle, was deceased by then, and uh, Poirot was just transitioning from Belgium to London and just kind of getting a start, so it just turned out kind of to be a, a transitional year so that if you had one of them on this end and one on that end and you had my character kind of bridging them in the middle oh, that's cool mm -hmm. that's really cool and so now we're on to Richard and um Richard your character is set present day he's a detective but then you've got this huge like you said genre bending plot so um how did it come to you well, let me just add that uh, there's a third category to what Rick was discussing, you know, the pantsers and the plotters. I'm what you'd call a plotter with a D. It just takes me so long to plot. To oh, plotter. <laughs> Fair. Yeah, uh, there's those too, right? <laughs> the backstory for Steve Wynn, I have several people I know that have uh, that suffer from social anxiety disorder. And for those, if you have, if you don't know someone like that, it's how they get through the day. It's it's just a miracle, and all the little tricks they 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 have to do to you know psych themselves to do things and to be around people and that. So I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to put a detective in that situation? Mm. So and he starts out, he's a you know brilliant school student at Berkeley, goes to Stanford Law, but he has to drop out because every time he's called upon in class, he freezes up, mm. just can't do it, and so. 
He's got this cousin, Tina No, who's a also an attorney, but she has a specialized practice in I call feral law. She'll pick up mm -hmm. any case. It's believed that her spirit animal is a pit bull. But she's Steve's wingman or wingwoman or wing person, you know, so guides him along. So he's got this this crutch with her and another cousin that gets him through, prepares him for court cases and that. But I wanted that condition. I like to have my protagonist uh, have three levels of conflict. One is the major story, something he can solve. The second is, well, he's got a because he got his shield so young, he's got all this problem within his department. They're always kind of questioning how he got, got in there so fast. So he's got to fight that. And also he's kind of paranoid, but it's kind of only in his own head. And then the third is how he has to deal with a social anxiety disorder and going to the psychologist, afraid to take medication because mm -hmm. if he got to a court case and a defense attorney would say, oh, you're on drugs and all this. So he's got to work it out, you know, kind of in, at the street level. So I've just kind of put him in a, and then I just, this other plot was kind of developed, uh, I was reading some articles back in 2015 about Russians actually doing some of the things I wrote about. And then come to find out 2016, we start talking about Russian collusion. I thought, well, this is a nice fit because, you know, yeah. all the Russian oil has seven pipelines that come through Ukraine <laughs> and uh, except yeah, for the Nord Stream and Nord Stream 2, which, yeah. So uh, that was kind of the genesis of both the character and the story. And I, I imagine you had to do quite a bit of research as well. I did, but boy, there's this thing, handy thing called the internet that really helps <laughs> out much. Oh, you mean you guys aren't just like going to Russia or going to England <laughs> for your research? <laughs> well, there's, it's interesting. I was actually, uh, our neighbor's son was stationed, he's with the State Department, he was stationed in Vilnius, Lithuania. And we went to visit him just when I was starting to write this. And uh we were at a party at his house and his, he married this woman who's from Lithuania. And she had her brother and all his friends there. And, and they were the first, last generation that had to learn Russian, the newest generation that didn't have to. Oh. And so all these couple of lawyers and a doctor, you know, at this, at this little party. And I said, I'm writing this book. Can you guys help me? Uh, need some, like some swear words in Russian. Can you help <laughs> me out? Oh, we had nice, we had a great time for the next hour. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't, I was trying to do it phonetically. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, so listen, we're we're gonna take a little midway seg, uh, midway break here, and Christy's gonna grab behind her what we call the question in the bottle, and it's just this sort of random question you might get to at the bottom of a bottle. <laughs> you know, we like we like to drink our wine. I don't know yeah. what's gonna come out, so I'm just saying. I this yeah. is okay. Well, this is a fun one. Would you rather travel the world for free for a year? Or have $50,000 to spend however you please. Travel the world. Easy. Oh, yeah? yeah? Kimberly's like, done. Yeah. Yeah. No question. Is that for everybody? Travel for me. Yes. Yeah. Travel. Yeah. Travel. Uh, yeah. Uh, everybody for, said travel? No. No. For pre-COVID, I would have said travel. At this point, I'd rather have the money and do something else. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anything fun you got in mind? I don't know. I'd have to think about it. Not, not, <laughs> not, not off the top of my head. <laughs> what about you, Kathy? You know, I initially was like travel, but I, I travel. I love traveling. And so my answer really would be travel. But it's, some, you know, it's not that pleasant of an experience to actually do the traveling sometimes. Right. Maybe we should put a caveat. You can travel the world for free first class. Oh, then, then, yeah, then I'd be done. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we'd all be done. But also think of what like when you said there's no parameters in that $50,000 and you start thinking about what you could do with that, that, that sounds pretty exciting too. I don't know. Yeah, what about you, Christy? True. You're the one that drew, drew oh, this crazy travel. question. 
travel. Yeah. 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 I would definitely travel, but there isn't anything that says I can't do it in style or how I can do it and that kind of thing. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like the money equivalent isn't fair for a year uh, or for. No, I know. That's what I, you know, yeah. I got this, this question online. I should have changed it to like a million (laughs) dollars or something because I was like, of course I could travel with 50,000 only a little bit, but right. I could travel. Yeah. Okay, so I'm really excited to ask you guys all about your experience in the publishing industry, what your what what surprised you and has been great and what has been challenging. And I would love to start with Kimberly because as a as a librarian, one of my very favorite careers in the world. Um you've really had a life of books. And so now that you're you know, writing and publishing, what what's great, what's been surprising, what's challenging? Well, Death of a Dancing Queen is actually the first book from a new imprint. It's a new oh. crime fiction imprint called Detura Books, and they are an imprint of Angry Robot Books. So Angry Robot does science fiction and fantasy, and they're a small press in the, the UK. So mm-hmm. honestly, and, and prior to this, I was independently published. My YA stuff was stuff I put out on my own for the most oh. part. My first book was from an independent press, um, but I got my rights back later. They're great. I just... They weren't, I just got my rights back. But anyway, so it's been for me like a 180 going from doing everything myself, hiring cover designers, hiring my editor, getting proofreaders, doing formatting, any type of ads to having somebody do all that for me and uh, get PR and hook me up on great podcasts. Mm-hmm. And um, get me into bookstores and the best part, libraries. Mm-hmm. So prior to the only library I was in was my library down the street. <laughs> you had an inn. <laughs> buy my books. And I, I, I have a habit now of going on WorldCat and checking all the libraries that have my newest book. Because to be reviewed in Library Journal and Booklist mm-hmm. and Publishers Weekly and the New York Times, I got reviewed in the New York Times. Yay! Wow. Um, Congratulations! Thank you. And it was a good review. I was nervous because they don't have to say anything yeah. nice. They could totally. Yeah, but oh my gosh, wow. that's great. So, so to have all that happen has been incredible. And I, my publisher, because they're smaller, I email them. I, I email the publishing assistant frequently. Like I feel like we're besties. I don't know. She, mm-hmm. I could be. She mom feels the same point. way, or he does. I hope so. Now, how did you end up with this publisher? Did, was it? Did you have an agent that got you to the publishing this pr- particular publisher? Or? I did. So interesting story that I will not drag out. Um, my <laughs> book was on sub for almost two years, and what we kept oh, hearing wow. from publishers was that female-led private eye fiction was a tough market. You know, which boggles my mind because of Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky yeah. and Janet Ivanovich, but the sales for Private Eye, female-led Private Eye, were not are not what they see with Sarah, Sue Grafton and Sarah Paretsky and Janet Ivanovich. So I got turned down a lot by many publishers, and it was incredibly frustrating. And I sort of like just put it back in my mind, and I said, "All right, we'll start with something different." Um, but my agent was talking to the publisher for Angry Robot and they told her, hey, we're starting a crime fiction imprint if you if you have authors that might fit our mold. And she's like, I do. I have a great author. Um, and she, you know, we, we always pitch my book as like Veronica Mars meets New Jersey because that's really mm-hmm. what it is. <laughs> and my British publisher was like, send it to me. I'll read it in two seconds. And she did. And I was like within a week, 
she had she had wow. been sent the manuscript and read it and responded and said, I think we can make this our lead title. So wow. Wow. yeah, it, it does it so when I tell that story, it is insane because for two yeah. years I two just years is a know. long time. Yeah. You just that's such a good anecdote. And then about, to have such success. At yeah. That. The yeah. anecdote about, you know, what you can control and what you can't in publishing when you're when you're not self-publishing, as you say, you're independent publishing. And I mean, I, I we've talked to so many authors that are indie or self-published, and I can see the attraction of that because you have some semblance of control of things. But as you say, the workload is just enormous. And so um, it's such a this, this is the perfect story of the balance, right? Of what you can do and then wait to that moment and how right. cool. And for mm -hmm. me, having done indie publishing, I just wanted to see what a traditional publishing experience yeah. would be like. And I, I felt that, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can go back to indie publishing. Mm -hmm. I don't have to shelve my books. You know, I don't have to give up on this. There are options for me. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And all of my YA books that I've published in the past that I published myself, I'm very proud of my work. I'll reread them mm -hmm. and be like, damn, this is so good. Like, yeah. <laughs> I am very proud of my book. They are indistinguishable in my opinion from what you would think is a traditionally published book. They are professionally right. edited. They have great cover art. They're professionally formatted and proofread. So I just knew that was an avenue I could always go back to, but I had found my agent and I love my agent. She's such a champion. She's a great partner. I really adore her. So to get to this point has been really wonderful. And it's just, again, I saw my book in person at a Barnes and Noble and I got to sign it and I freaked a little bit and I yelped in yeah. the aisle and somebody looked at me funny and then I'm explaining. I'm like, you don't understand. This is my book. I wrote this. He didn't care. <laughs> I didn't care. Oh, yeah. That's great. Okay. That's great. So I, um, I'm curious to ask Rick about his process because as he said, he's newer into this industry, good and bad, challenging and rewarding. Well, I, I'm not, I don't know how that I'm really that newer into the industry. Um, I'm newer as a writer, but I've been uh, an executive in a publishing company now for 17 years. So, wow. you know, I uh, I do have a little background in it. To me, um, the the biggest thing that I learned was more as a publishing executive than even as a writer. And that was, and I kind of will uh, some way build on what Kimberly said, but in a slightly different manner, was how different agents are. And that there are some agents that are incredibly supportive of their authors and really do all sorts of different things for them. And then other agents get a deal and then kind of don't do anything after that. And that's the end of what they do. And I don't know how many authors actually realize that there is a huge spectrum of difference between agents. Oh, yeah. right. So Rick, I don't think you... anybody's mentioned that. Yeah, to us I've before. never heard yeah. that before. So what how would you wait just show that? Yeah. My agent is my second agent. My first agent ah. sucked. <laughs> So okay. I, he was, he was terrible. And uh, I, I will say that. So it took me my second agent before I found somebody that just, you know, really turned that supports you. Is yeah. it, is that what Where it is like, when oh, you say, this is what this is supposed to feel yeah. like. Yeah. Not, not that dread where I'm like, you know, where your gut is telling you like, this is not correct. <laughs> so right. I just wanted to interrupt. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but I'd be like, no, 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 no absolutely. Yeah, yeah. This is a conversation. Agent. Yeah. yeah so I, what, I, what would you add about that? Like, what would you say to people? How, how do you vet agents? 
Well, because <laughs> you, you know, authors are so happy just to get signed, right? I know. So, can you no imagine question. getting signed and having like a gut feeling, like Kimberly mentioned, like, oh, I know, but I want an agent, you know? Well, I made it my passion after that to make sure mm. that because there was nothing online to suggest that this agent wasn't above board. There was nothing. And I scoped and I even got a recommendation. And when I started talking to other clients, we all realized that there was a pattern of behavior that was pretty bad. And mm. um, Query Tracker is, is probably your best bet for, for finding out information. So, and always get references, always. Yeah, that, that's what I was gonna say. There's no easy answer to your question. There's no place really where you can go and they're rated as such. We're gonna call you, Rick. Yeah, well, I, cer I certainly know quite a few of them. I don't know all of them, but you know, I'm very lucky because, you know, I've got a great agent too, but I, I knew the agent before, you know, we got together on my books. So I, I had mm -hmm. a head start, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. I'll tell you the thing, though, um, that is both a writer and uh, as a publisher that has surprised me uh, over these 17 years is... Um, how many locations will not take books by self-published authors, which I think is a mistake because I think mm -hmm. a good book is a good book, no matter whether it's mm -hmm. published by the author or published by a publisher, but we're still living in an environment where there are places, bookstores, libraries, and others that yeah. will not take self-published books. And I think that's true. I, I self-published a book under a pseudonym uh, before I ever did this, and I know what everybody goes through, mm -hmm. and I just, you know, I could have done better if more pe places were open to it. Didn't they just recently, uh, maybe USA Today or was New York Times has stopped reviewing um, mm -hmm. indie published books for yes. the for the bestseller lists, and so yeah, well, one well, one of the problems yeah. is. You know, according to Boker, there are four million books uh, published every new new books published every year in the United States, and wow. it, and more than fifty percent of those are self published. So one of the kind of issues is if books in general are the forest and each individual book is the tree, how do you get your book seen, and how does somebody like USA Today get to choose? which one they should do. It's a double-edged sword. On one hand, they should look at all of them. On the other hand, they can't look at 4 million books. Right. Yeah. It's just too many. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, Richard, thoughts? Good, bad, second book well, now? I, uh, I I had an agent for uh, Maskarovka under a different name. You know, I went through the whole process. You know, I think I sent my spreadsheet of all, you know, 200 God, and finally someone said, Hey, I, I kind of like this. So, but he could not, uh, could not sell it, you know, to the, the big, you know, the big houses. So after about a year, I, I mean, I, you know, the contract was up and I thought at that point, you know, I just, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a whim. I, I, I submitted it to uh Kirkus reviews, you know, and, uh, come back, came back and got a star. And then I, mm. I used that star to go to a couple of small, different small publishers, and ah. and they they liked it. Uh, the, this Blue Water Press in Florida, and they liked it. So it's a small publisher, so I have to do all the marketing. You know, they they take care of most of it, but I do most of the marketing. But then, Kirk has put it on the the, the list of 100 best indies for 2022. So wow. I was happy awesome. about that. Congratulations! <laughs> Good for you. But I'm That's still huge. trying to get an agent and a big house. <laughs> so you're on the backside. 
Okay. Yeah, this, it's it's yeah. tough. I I figure I'm like uh, I use the analogy. I'm I'm playing. Uh, I'm out of high school baseball. I'm into a uh, double A. I have not made it to the bigs yet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the or the garage band. We're still we're still practicing in my uncle's garage. That's awesome. There you go. Awesome. As long as everybody's naming their publisher, my publisher is Blackstone Publishing, which mm-hmm. I think is one of the best mid-sized publishers out there. But I'm prejudiced. Yeah, <laughs> they're putting well, out some big... a lot of books from Blackstone. Yeah, they've had a lot of books from Blackstone. Yeah. yeah, we have. All right, Rebecca, your turn. Tell us who, what, good, challenging. Well, I, like, um, it sounds like a lot of you. I come from another. You know, I have an analogy with another profession. I'm a visual artist, and I always tell my students, you know, I I didn't get enough rejection and work for no money as a artist, so that I decided <laughs> to become a novelist. <laughs> you know, like an insane person. And, um, yeah. and and one thing I always like to offer my students and I tell myself is, you know, the best hitters in baseball, another professional analogy, the very best hitters in baseball fail seven out of 10 times. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I like to keep that thought in mind because I don't have an agent. I submitted, I, I knew this book was good. It won a few awards or was like runner up for a few awards. I got a lot of great feedback, but I, a lot of it was, I don't think I can sell a book with an older protagonist. There was a lot of people that asked me to the prom, but nobody put a ring on it, sort of, so to speak, in terms of agents. I'm mixing metaphors all over the place. <laughs> I love it. Um, but, but at any rate, like Kimberly, I'd kind of said, I didn't want to self-publish partly because I just didn't feel like I had the bandwidth for that kind of work. And I I had also, you know, kind of set it aside and gotten very deep in, into a, another book. And I thought, you know, this one, it, it won a few awards and things for, uh, for unpublished works or first chapters and things. But I sent it, it was actually, I sent it a direct submission to Crooked Lane Books, which is my publisher, which is one of the few mid-level publishers or mid-sized publishers that takes on occasion unagented manuscripts. Mm -hmm. And within a couple of weeks, the editor got back to me. And the upside of that publisher, I mean, they do have a PR um, thing. It's It's been reviewed in Publishers Weekly. It's an audio book is being made by Dreamscape and they are distributed by Penguin Random House. Hmm. So there's a huge, they have a huge reach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, So I went into my local bookstore to, to ask about doing some, some cop. It hasn't come out yet. So um, it comes out next month. I asked, you know, to, to have maybe to have some signed copies and he said, well, let me take a look. And he said, oh, we already ordered it. Oh, it was great. great. Oh, yes. nice. How nice, nice is that? Yeah, yeah, it was awesome, right? And he said, you know, it's because Penguin Random House. Mm-hmm. So I, I was thrilled. But I still don't have an agent. Oh, really? You'll get one now. I never did get an agent. And, and after I was offered the contract, I thought, should I do this kind of back-ass words and get a, a agent? But then I thought, you know, I've already done the work. Why do I give them money? <laughs> and and I also have a lot of friends who are um, who have had not great experiences with agents. Either either it was a perfectly uh, collegial relationship, but they couldn't sell the book, 
Mm -hmm. or they they put them through making all these changes in this book that they just didn't quite feel right and then you know after a year and and having torn apart the manuscript or redone it it ended up not they ended up not being able to place it anyway so um but and this the the publisher has a right of first review for the next one i'm writing it's not really i don't know that it's their kind of book so who knows what will happen but i'm hoping that this one does well enough that i could you know either piggyback on that somehow do it again without an agent or find an agent that could then you know help me get you in a different area i christy i think this is one of the most candid and informative and helpful conversations we've ever had about finding that right agent and yeah it's like dating but with a weird (laughs) i mean i know you know in the art world and probably in the in the writing world too there's a certain amount of performativity right you're always trying to like make yourself you know you know there's a certain kind of like presentation of how successful you are that people Mm -hmm. have Mm -hmm. but that's really not honest and it's really not helpful i mean i i read probably 70 agents that's a lot of questions isn't this the best part of of this industry i think the best part is the authors that you meet and the connections that you make i mean listen to all how how Profusely, you're all talking about sisters in crime. I mean, just the deep love oh. of sisters in crime, mm-hmm. and it's it, it's those it's those connections. I think that's so so lovely. All right, Christy's going to have a final question for you. So, oh yes, okay, be prepared. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, I, I just like to go off the wall a little bit, and um, so Kathy and I are going to start a crime fighting team, and we want each of you to offer us one of your characters for a spot on our GOB squad. Okay. (laughs) So which would you volunteer? Which of your characters would you volunteer to be part of our crime fighting team? And what role on the team would they be? And we're going to start with Kimberly. I'm going to give you Gramps. He's going to be your logistics guy. Okay. He's going to be your reality check. Yeah. He'll tell you if a plan doesn't work. Okay. That's going to be, we'll need that. you'll need him. Yeah. He's also great. Okay. All right. Anybody else? Richard? Tina, no. She'll be your badass. She'll oh. get it done. Oh, Yeah. Okay. okay, and she'll yeah. and she'll she'll listen to Gramps too, right? Or... <laughs> he'll need he'll need a lawyer. <laughs> Rick, I guess I'd have to offer up Scorpion. He'd probably be the leader. Ooh. Okay, as he would, and he'd have a British accent, of course. He <laughs> would indeed. A very handsome one, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> okay, last but not least, Rebecca. Oh, um, I have to either Franny, the protagonist, um, your medical person, and she has a lot of uh, enormous insight into people's motivations, but also um, a person she gets to know who also lives in this retirement um, home named Evan, who is sort of a professional noticer. And this guy notices everything. Yeah, he's good, he's good. A professional noticer. And he, I mean, mm-hmm. I think he he was an investigator, but not officially, but he, he just notices things and he puts two and two yeah. together. So 
Yeah, I think either one of those would get along with Gramps, and then we would uh, yeah. we'd have that whole like <laughs> understated. Nobody knows it, but they're they're being watched, you know. <laughs> well, thank you guys. That's this has been a lot of fun. Um, we really enjoy enjoy hearing all about your books, and um, we wish you the best success, right, Kathy? Yes. So um, we will, of course, provide the links to everybody's websites and social media so ever, all of our listeners awesome. can reach out to you and buy your books as and leave reviews as we would request them to do. Um, so I think all we have left to do is do a cheers to everyone's yes. outstanding success. <laughs> and thank Look you. at I've already, I've already got to the bottom of my glass. I <laughs> Thanks for joining us for today's episode. Subscribe to our podcast on our website, gameofbookspodcast.com, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you liked what you heard, you can give us a five-star rating or review. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can watch and listen. On gameofbookspodcast.com, you can find all the information about what we talked about on this episode. And you can sign up for our newsletter and enter our fun contests and giveaways. We also post our stories and links on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hope to see you there. I can guarantee you that we had fun today. And we hope you did too. Cheers.